Shut up and sit down. November ring. Is that Guns N' Roses? <laughs> that is Guns N' Fucking Roses, man. Whoa, whoa, yeah, yeah. You think that song ends at four minutes? Go. Nope. Uh, that song more. ends in nine minutes and 12 seconds. <laughs> there's a dip, <laughs> but then there's more song. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Superhero Movie Club, a community of superhero movie fans. All nerds welcome, but please wipe your feet at the door. I'm your comic cultured host, Michael Maurer, joined by the movie maestro. James Skyler Hutzma. And the scientific scholar. Ben Anderson. Oh, S-H- and... <laughs> oh, Ben, almost again, overstepping. Uh, we also have a special guest with us tonight, our X-Men expert. Brian Schnark. Yeah! <laughs> that wasn't written down in the outline, it always throws people off. Because they're like, oh, are we going on script? No. Things get a little hasty, like this transition to being back on the script. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, um, it all really only throws me off because um, there's no gap between when I say my name and that SHMC is your premier movie discussion podcast. Every week we continue our journey exploring our favorite subject, superhero movies. Every fan sees the movies differently, so we gather some amateur experts to discuss certain aspects of the movie. Whether it's money, comic books, hollow character deaths, music, or science, SHMC talks about it all in this week's episode. Go inside, get the boy, and kill him. With pleasure. Men, the last stand. And yes, there will be spoilers. Sounds like you almost wanted to say X-Men 3 The Last Stand. Throw last stand. It feels like it. <laughs> and I always call this X-Men 3 and everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yep. It but doesn't have a number though. It is in fact the third X-Men movie, so <laughs> Alright then, first opinions around the board. Let's start with Benjamin. Yeah, so um, I have not seen any of the original X-Men trilogy, so in that sense, I feel like I might have had a lesser um, experience with this one because, um, how should I explain this? So when you're writing a story, there's two, there's two things you have to address that your audience is going to ask eventually. First question they're going to ask you is, who the fuck are these people? And the second thing they're asking is, why do I give a shit? And I feel like some of those questions would have been answered in the first two movies, but I haven't seen them. 
So the whole time I was asking myself, who are these people and why do I care? It's a sequel. I mean... It's a sequel. This is, this is like when I saw Pirates of the Caribbean 3 without seeing Pirates of the Caribbean 2. I was like, okay, I recognize, I recognize these people, but I feel like I'm missing a lot. <sighs> okay. All right. So, fine. So I, 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 I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. Um, it was no um, X-Men Days of Future Past. But it was no X-Men Origins Wolverine. And I appreciated that, well, it, there was, you know, the social commentary that the X-Men movies are kind of known for, um, that it was less heavy-handed than X-Men First Class. Less heavy-handed? Yes. At least less dumb. Uh, oh, I suppose. It was, uh, it was still pretty heavy-handed. But like, the social was, commentary is there, but it's dealt in a more subtle way that applies to the movie yes. and less obvious. Yeah, there's there's nothing where they're like mutant and proud, and you're like, hmm, I wonder what this movie's about. <laughs> Is there an allegory here? I don't know. I mean, ob- right. obviously there is, but it, it's 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 handled better than popcorn. In popcorn. Then go ahead. Popcorn, your bitch ass, Michael. <laughs> okay, uh, X Men Three, regarded as at the time the worst X Men movie of all time, but now. There is certainly a deeper valley out there, and we've talked about it. It was Wolverine. X-Men 3 is, man, watching it again, I've come to realize that it is indeed an entertaining movie. From just like a like an action movie standpoint, this is just me maybe, um, the plot can get really hard to follow because – the, the the storytelling mechanisms aren't that well refined. I'm sounding pretentious here. Because basically, what happened in X Men Three is you got like six different plot points. You had Dark Phoenix. You had Angel. You had, uh, of course, Scott's death, Xavier's death, uh, all of, and then ever, anything that dealt with Wolverine. I guess Rogue's need to the cure was such a big deal, but. Like very few of these stories really connected in a conclusive way that it felt like they were telling one big tale. It all felt like just six different stories in a two and a half hour period that just sort of interconnected with each other, uh, not or just like were placed side by side, um, like Pulp Fiction style. Well, nah, not Pulp Fiction. It's really hard to explain because. Well, it's not a bad movie in any way, I don't think. I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just not a really good X-Men movie. Um, Because when we talk about The Cure and that whole setup, you're thinking that's going to be a big plot of the film. But it gets, by Act 2, it's kind of like pushed to the side, and it all becomes about this war with Magneto. And then out of nowhere, Dark Phoenix is the big villain that you have to deal with. So... I don't know. It kind of felt like how the storytelling was done in Amazing Spider-Man 2. What, what you got to say about that film, neither here nor there. So go ahead, Skyler. All right. Uh, X-Men The Last Stand is a decent action movie, I will say, and a mostly disappointing X-Men movie. It's easily the zippiest X-Men movie thus far. It gets to the action set pieces and breezes along without having to invest too much in it. Uh, at the same time, the fact that it's an X-Men movie has some certain expectations to it. And putting aside the fact that there's a lesser filmmaker at the helm this time, and it's somewhat apparent, 
just the fact that our focus is battled between the the Cure storyline and the Dark Phoenix storyline. It feels like they're constantly just shortchanging each other, and it makes for a more or a more hollow experience, I think, watching it. Not to mention that it seems like the entire mechanism they use to try and get us invested in the movie is just killing off characters willy-nilly, which it doesn't play out quite as well as I think they were expecting. That only works if you care about the characters to begin with. <laughs> well, they got rid of Cyclops for studio reasons. I mean, he wasn't. that wasn't even like a storytelling plot. It was because he was time was being taken up of him being filmed on Superman Returns. Also, I don't give a shit about Cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> Very underappreciated character in the X-Men movie franchise. Probably because he hasn't been betrayed the best thus far, but that's neither here nor there. Moving on to Ryan. Yeah, I don't dislike the movie. Um, it definitely was the low point of the original trilogy, but as you said, that is not the low point now. Um, I I did find, I watched it again last night actually with the commentary by Ratner and then both of the both of the writers just to get myself kind of, because I haven't watched it in a number of years, um, but it was, I, it, it, it wasn't, uh, yeah, like I said, it wasn't bad, it was entertaining, it just could have been a bit deeper, um, and uh, there was just, there were too many characters that really got no development, and a few, again, this is a comic book tweaks that, you know, obviously don't quite matter, because it's a movie, and you're going to get into them later anyway. Um, but yeah, so not bad, but could have been better. All right, so let's talk about money dealing with X-Men 3. With a whopping budget of $210 million, how are we sitting here with money stats, Sky Guy? I'd say we're sitting pretty damn good. Uh, domestic gross on uh, the 2006 third installment ended up at $234 million. Foreign gross was... Really damn close at $224 million for a grand total of $459 million worldwide international blockbuster. Fox, you know, took the money to the bank on this one. Uh, as, of, uh, as of now, it is still the biggest X-Men movie in America by just $400,000. Wait, hold on. What? Biggest X-Men movie in America by just dollars 400,000. Oh, okay. I'm getting my numbers mixed up because I'm no. thinking $400,000 is like 400 million. And I'm like, that's a big difference. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> X-Men Days of Future Past last summer came really, really close to surpassing it, but stopped just short of it. Another example of the sequel train brings the money in. No kidding. I have no doubt that uh, the next X-Men movie will surpass it as the biggest uh, X-Men movie this side of the shores. Meanwhile, <laughs> it is by far not the biggest movie in the uh, series internationally because Days of Future Past did wipe the floor with it. Well, because that's, oh, man, international numbers. We talk about it. I feel as if there's going to be like a drinking game devised for this show 
because it's like anytime we talk about how international numbers have increased over the years, <laughs> uh, anytime we hearken back to an old soundtrack uh, that it reminds us of. Every time we mention how great Ghostbusters 2 was. Ghostbusters 2 was a good movie. It was so good. Yep, Ghostbusters 2. Better what than a this, good movie. Better Ghost, than this schlock. Ghostbusters 2, starring Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. What the fuck are you guys doing? Excuse me? I've tried to make him understand he said Ghostbusters 2 when he meant to say Ghost Rider 2. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Every time we talk about Ghostbusters 2 as well. It's starring Ghost... Yeah. <laughs> I was starring like, Ghostbuster. What's he going to notice? <laughs> I would not have noticed, ever. Okay, let's talk about the comic book section Ghostbuster, here. Ghostbuster, I hardly know her. <laughs> there it is. Take a drink. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, with comic book section, let's talk about some of the comic book characters that have premiered in this film, as well as comic book storylines that the movie is based on. The movie is primarily based on two stories. We have Astonishing X-Men Volume 3, The Cure arc by Joss Whedon, which, of course, deals with the development of a, of a mutant cure it's the comic books are much able much better able to flesh out that story than a movie is uh and making it exciting as well and then of course the dark phoenix saga by chris claremont and i'll describe that in a minute (laughs) or in a little bit because i'm about to here we go guys rapid fire again with the x-men knowledge because man x-men loves throwing in as many freaking characters as possible and i'm going to ignore some of the teeny teeny ones like there was there was a mention of the stepford cuckoos kid omega was in the background with them uh there was psylocke and arclight were there but did like two things and i don't even want to talk about the weird mixture of the caliban mixed with quicksilver and then she ended up calling herself Callisto in the movie. What the hell is Glob Herman? That just got added. <laughs> that is an, another one by Kid Omega that was just kind of in the background. That's doesn't he does even less than Kid Omega in the comics. So he, <laughs> I, I just threw him on there because I knew he was another name. Another name. See you like I, I you learn so many things. So let's start with the first character here, Dr. Kavita Rao, Astonishing X-Men Volume 3, number one, premiere with Joss Whedon and John Cassidy, and this is the character that created the cure for the mutant X gene. In the comic book, she has a closer relationship with Dr. Hank McCoy, assuming that they worked together in genetics beforehand, Um, but in the movie, she's just a doctor that did it and then dies. So, moving on. Multiple Man. Uh, a.k.a. Jamie Madrox, premiered in giant-sized Fantastic Four number 4 in 1975 by Len Wein, Chris Claremont, and John Puscema. Did I pronounce it wrong again? Len Wayne? I can never get this right. Len Wine. Len Wine? <laughs> Damn it. Okay. Um, and he's prepared, uh, pr- portrayed by Eric Dane in the movie for about two scenes. Uh, Peter David is the man best known for fleshing out this character because Multiple Man is known for having multiple personality disorder. 
go figure. His duplicates are completely sentient. That's kind of what makes him very interesting. So when he creates a dupe of himself, um, they have their own thoughts, their own passions. They, they're just, they develop their own destinies as soon as they separate themselves from, from Jamie. Uh, so they often go rogue, and he has to like hunt them down because the way he absorbs them, reabsorbs them, is by touching them. And he's done that like sometimes unknowingly with people that turned out to be a piece of him. And like, like I, I think he ended up having, I don't know. There's so many weird stories out there. There's some sort of weird explanation for one time he had sex with a character and then reabsorbed that character because that was actually originally a clone of him. It's messed up. X Men gets what, messed up. What what it was was uh, his dupe impregnated uh, somebody and didn't realize that it was his dupe, not him. So when he touched the baby, he absorbed the baby. Oh my god! That See, fucked. <laughs> what the hell? Comic uh, books are where very strange touched people go to deliver our nightmares. All right. Next character, Juggernaut, premiering in X-Men number 12, the first line by Stanley and Jack Kirby in 1965, and he is Professor X's half-brother, not addressed at all in the movie. Uh, but way back in time, the, the origin is that Kane Marco, Juggernaut's real name, his father favored Charles, um, Charles Xavier and abused his own son. This this made Kane really like resent Charles from childhood and from then on out unrationally. And eventually he finds a magic gem from a mystical being known as Sitarak. So he's been in a and then that's how he gets his powers and becomes the juggernaut. He's not actually a mutant, he's just mystically enhanced. Uh he's been in magic. so many yeah, magic. He's been in so many comics, been on t like the Brotherhood of Evil as well as um as well as the X-Men multiple times. Uh one time Colossus actually maintained power of the gem and became Juggernaut instead, bitch. <laughs> I was Someone wondering when we were going to get to that. <laughs> um and in the movie you see a mutant version of Juggernaut just to make things simpler. Uh, I'm not going to go ahead and even say he was the ultimate Marvel Ultimate version of Juggernaut. I think it was just make him a mutant, save us some time here, make it easy on our audience. Uh, fun fact, uh, for X-Men Days of Future Past, in the original draft, it was supposed to be uh, Juggernaut who broke Magneto out of the Pentagon instead of... Quicksilver, which they eventually went with. Oh, but, you know, they wanted a scandal to deal with naming rights because ugh, Fox and Marvel. And they won, so good for them. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, yeah, I guess they won. The other team just relented quicker. Uh, the, the next character we have is Angel, premiering in X-Men number one. 1963, Stanley and Jack Kirby, Angel, one of the founding members of the X-Men team, heir to the Warren, heir to the Worthington fortune, probably the flakiest of the original five members of the team. He leaves and comes back, and he's the least consistent member. He's off doing his own thing a lot, mostly because he doesn't have a very particularly interesting power, um, and his backstory isn't all that 
intriguing either. Uh, he's a rich playboy who can fly. Awesome. Until eventually... <laughs> but Batman can't fly. Uh, eventually, he gets depowered and then gets his powers back by the evil mutant known as, and soon to be known throughout the land, Apocalypse. Uh, and that's when he becomes Archangel, and he gets like techno-organic wings and blue skin, and he actually becomes a horseman of death. Uh, and one of his second mutations, uh, his latent mutations, involved a healing factor where the capabilities are inconsistent because sometimes it's just like a healing factor that applies to him, but other times he can like perform a blood transfusion on other people, and his blood will heal their body, and then other times that won't apply either. It's all writer's discretion because comic books. Uh, moving on, moving on, moving on. Next character, Beast. X-Men number one again. Another member of the original five. In case you're wondering, Jean Grey, Cyclops, Iceman, Beast, Angel. Originally, we know now that Beast is not blue. As we saw in X-Men First Class, that was a, a plot point where he develops a second mutation where he becomes blue and furry. And this was done because writers felt he wasn't uh, or artists felt he wasn't visually compelling enough because he was just this apish-looking white guy, and they're like, let's make him like a like a furball, and that'll be more more fun to draw. Uh, Beast is known for being the most level-headed mutant. He's been on multiple X-Men teams, uh, the Avengers, the Defenders, and if you're ever wondering if they strayed away from the character in the movie, don't, because in in my humble opinion. Kelsey Grammer portrayed Hank McCoy to 100%. <laughs> Kelsey Grammer was the perfect beast. I just about lost it when he said, "All my stars and garters." It's a, he was amazing. He was just, he was everything you wanted. Just that perfect level of like, uh, very poetic, and and uh, starry-eyed when he when he's talking and up above and but not snobbish, just intelligent, and then at the same time feral. He can rip a throat if he needs to. Uh, next character we have is the first big appearance of Shadowcat, who premiered in Uncanny X-Men number 129 in 1980 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. While she was cameoed in X-Men 1 and 2 movies, this is the first time we see her portrayed and have lines. Kitty Pride has gone through worlds of character development throughout the years. Probably more than any other X-Men character, I'd have to say. She started out as this cute Jewish teenage nerd girl who all the, a lot of X-Men uh, fanboy readers had a crush on. And she's grown up into the, a teacher at the Xavier Institute to the leader of the X-Men, um, been romantically involved with Colossus back and forth. She has a pet dragon named Lockheed. There are so many alternate versions of Kitty Pride, good and bad. Uh, the the bad ones include uh, ninjas that are very cold and heartless, or good ones where she became the first mutant president ever. Uh, I mean, Kitty Pride is in a character to the X Men who is who is essential to almost every story she appears in. She's done some weird stuff, all right? So have many other characters. But let's get to the final character on the comic book list, Dark Phoenix. Premiered in X-Men 129, same as Kitty Pride. 
um, with, by Chris Claremont, John Byrne, and somewhat influenced by Dave Cockrum as well, uh, or mostly influenced by Dave Cockrum, I suppose. And this is one of the most monumental series in Marvel history. Uh, back from a space mission, Gene bonds with a cosmic being known as the Phoenix Force. I'm about to go through this in a shortened version, okay? Get ready. This Phoenix Force gives her godlike powers, but she must use them, firstly, to repair a fracture in a reality-altering gem known as the Emkron Crystal. Shortly after she does this task, she loses control of this bond, and the blind power of the Phoenix Force takes over. Unstoppable, she absorbs a star for power, causing the death of a solar system and the genocide of billions. She is hunted down by bird people space police, known as the Shi'ar, and put on trial after Professor X temporarily blocks out the Phoenix persona. After an epic trial by combat between the Shi'ar Imperial Guard and the X-Men, Jean believes herself to be too dangerous and commits suicide before the Phoenix could take back control. Why didn't they do that story for the movie? I mean, that's easy and accessible, and people will get that. No, yeah. actually, it's it's too weird. <laughs> it is really yeah, weird. Yeah, that's 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 the joke. <laughs> but uh, oh, <laughs> screw you guys. Um, but the uh, fun fact: uh, she was initially not supposed to die at the end of that storyline. Oh yeah. The initial ending was. Uh, she essentially got a power lobotomy, so she's no longer a mutant, but Marvel Editorial came in and said, no, she killed billions of people. She has to die. Oh, yeah. Jim Shooter was furious at the idea that she would not suffer harsh consequences for being a genocidal maniac. That's what uh, they did for just starting to pay attention halfway through a storyline. <laughs> well, yeah. I will, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've, I've read. There's many a tales about the back end of what was going on when this when this comic book series was being made, uh, because, like I said, this is one of the biggest events. This is the first time a a main character gets killed off in such a just dramatic fashion, and you get Chris Claremont. If you've ever read the Phoenix Saga, it is wordy. Chris Claremont loves words, and it is just like this giant piece of poetry about how you know absolute power corrupts absolutely whether you want it to or not, and you must face the consequences of responsibilities of what you've done after you've committed atrocities. Um, and you know, no matter how much your friends love you and how much you felt you weren't in control, you have to take responsibility. And you have to make the hard choice. Do you know if this uh, saga preceded the death of Gwen Stacy one? I just know you're talking about, you know, it's the first time a major character is killed off. Uh, it, it was post Gwen Stacy. Yeah, definitely post Gwen Stacy. Okay. Gwen Stacy happened, I think, in the 1970s. Uh, but the thing about Gwen Stacy was she was a civilian. Uh, the big the big um, deal was Gwen Stacy died a civilian. She was the being involved with a superhero, um, this is the first time a superhero has to own up to making like a mistake, <laughs> or, yeah. or or billions of mistakes all at once. Yeah. Mhm. So I'm done. I can breathe. Oh, we've we've burned through. I I mean I don't know how long until we get to X two, but 
damn it, X-Men movies, could you just cool it on the amount of characters? I just watched the X-Men Apocalypse trailer, and you know what? They're throwing in like 15 new characters into that movie too. And I'm just like, dear God, I'm going to die. Do you know if X-Men Apocalypse is going to be based on um, X-Men Legends 2 Age of Apocalypse for the Nintendo GameCube? <laughs> or for PS2 and Xbox? Uh, uh, GameCube was the definitive version. I suppose you might be right. Um, but no, it won't. Oh, that's <laughs> probably okay. Be... <laughs> well, yeah, that dealt with, like, Wraith was in that, or no, Abyss was in that, and uh, uh, there was a character in there called Holocaust, it's like, okay. Everybody in that one. <laughs> yeah. The actual Age of Apocalypse, we'll talk about this more later, but the actual Age of Apocalypse storyline, while big and lasted a long time in X-Men world, in my opinion, was like none of it was any that really that good. All right, so let's, speaking of not good, oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. Great. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> Sorry, I just that's just where I ended, and you know how I segue. Um, yeah. Here, let's move on to Skylar's music section. Take it away, homeboy. All right, you can take a breather now because I'm going to be talking about the score for X Men: The Last Stand, done by John Powell, who I believe this is the first time we have referenced him and his work, and it's probably going to be the last time until he does something upcoming. Uh, very talented composer. He's known got his start in Hans Zimmer's remote control production studio. Uh, largely known for being the composer of the Bourne movies and How to Train Your Dragon films. And uh, I would say listening to this score, it ranks probably among the top three best which puts it definitely at odds with the movie itself. Um, this would be his only uh, score he wrote for X-Men movies, and like pretty much everyone else, instead of copying previous themes and arcs and all that stuff, he came up with his own theme for the X-Men. So let us take a listen to what he came up with in Bathroom Titles. There were some definite moments in this movie where you could kind of tell that they were leaning on the music to carry the scene. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I think uh, Powell's a strong composer, and what he's writing for this movie is really uh, busy, big, dramatic, and action-oriented, much like the plot itself. Uh, the next uh, track I have up on the queue is... Uh, song called Dark Phoenix's Tragedy, which, like I said, very action-oriented, but the sounds he comes up with for this particular part of the movie uh, and how it shifts from just a, the sound of an all-out brawl to kind of, well, as the title indicates, a tragedy and a character losing control and how he 
portrays that in his music, I think, makes it kind of one of my favorite uh, superhero tracks, maybe of all time. So let's take a listen. closed my eyes for that track and I tried to you know picture picture what is what does that sound like where am I and I you know <laughs> a lot of the times I'll be like oh that reminds me of a time in this movie but I went to a completely new scene and I just I just when I'm listening to that I, I heard like two brothers on a bridge preparing to fight each other no reason I don't know why and but just like they had to kill each fight each other to the death that's the music I was hearing. Is that weird? It's it's both a good and bad thing, you know. <laughs> uh, on one hand, it doesn't exactly paint the the exact image of the picture it's accompanying. On the other hand, it's thematically malleable so that you can use it and listen to it in any sort of situation that is that dramatic. Um, also worth of note, if you listen in there... Uh, there's some early uh, uses of our ever favorite, you know, hammer on the anvil sound that we that have showed up in Iron Man and Thor and basically every Marvel movie. I'm guessing in relation to uh, the Juggernaut being there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's I. That's what I think of hammer on anvil. I think hmm, the Juggernaut, bitch. Bitch. I have to imagine just film composers are having like a monthly coffee clutch or something where it's like, oh, and what uh, upcoming project are you using the hammer and anvil sound on? Oh, you know. It's, it oh, is, you know, I'm doing a He-Man. I'm doing a He-Man project. Oh, oh, oh. we've got we've got Todd over here with uh, World of Warcraft. He said he, he said he got some great usage for the orc scenes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, it's it's... It's not going anywhere, is I think what should be taken away from this. But final track I have on the docket is another Phoenix-related track, Phoenix Rising, because I just feel like the most uh, harrowing parts of the music for this movie are in relation to that character. Um, this one, <laughs> it's much like the finale itself, is... All-out chaos, big 80-piece choir singing doom and gloom while that uh, Phoenix theme sneaks in once more. Let's take a listen.
love it. Not gonna lie, man, it's like a video game boss battle. It's awesome. <laughs> it's like that is a finale. I have to back things up real quick because I have to. I have to make notes. Viewers must know. All right, when I was a little child and I saw this movie for the first time in theaters, big X Men fan, but most of my knowledge came from, of course, X Men the animated series. And when you think Phoenix, what image comes to your mind? A bird, right? A, a big bird, fiery yeah. bird. Fox a bird from Harry on, Potter. on fire. A yep. bird that's on fire. Throughout this whole movie, as a kid, I was going, when is the phoenix going to turn on fire? Damn it. Like, I was just waiting for it, but instead you had this weird old lady face and melting disintegration of people effect. Terrifying. Really, it is, honestly, if you think about it, but I wanted fire and brimstone, baby. I wanted a lot of it. <laughs> There's certainly a lot of old lady face going on. Yeah, I didn't – I wanted, like, the whole – her hair to, like, explode into a crown of flames and just an image of a phoenix to show up. Everybody keeps calling it that, but we haven't seen an image of a phoenix since the cliffhanger of X2. Okay, I'm done. Any more of music? I'm sorry, I went on a tangent there. It's okay. We'll we'll find something to do with it. I'm sure. Um, am I wrong in thinking this is just really solid film score writing? Oh, that's like amazing. I won't even say solid. I'll say this is above like pay, his pay grade. Like this is good. This is really good. It's distinctive. It fits the movie where it needs to. In fact, it's better than like 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 you said. The problem <laughs> with the movie was was that the 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 stories weren't coming together. But if you I don't know if you take each piece on its own and with the music behind it and the acting and the action and you're like this is entertaining. This is good. The the soundtrack kind of gives some emotional weight to a otherwise lifeless movie. A little, yeah. It is. It is kind of the relationships are probably another weakness of the film. Yeah. You don't really feel a lot for the characters outside of maybe Wolverine and Jean. Who are these people, and why should I care? <laughs> and quite honestly, I think a good score can mean the difference between a totally forgettable movie. And a, you know, just slightly disappointing movie. Like like this one, you know. Story elements aren't really working, but we still look back on it as being pretty entertaining. It's funny that you say forgettable, because the other night, when I was thinking about what I was going to write for this, uh, for this movie, um, I, I literally I stopped and thought, and I went, hold on. Was there a second the Wolverine movie already. Like I had lost track for like a literally just a moment. I was I was in the bathroom. I go, hold on. Did the Wolverine two come out? And I just didn't know. <laughs> that one has not aged well at all. <laughs> no. And neither has its score. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So any other music to speak of? No, I just uh, I really look forward to the next time John Powell takes up a superhero project come back to us john okay uh so let's move on to benjamin and science hey <laughs> hey buddy all right so you uh, you you told me beforehand that you had no idea what you were going to talk about so let's uh let's we we've we've rummaged together a few topics mm -hmm. um let's start with a quick and easy and dirty one 
Uh, and in the, the final fight, you had the very satisfying scene of Iceman going up against Pyro. And while good guy wins and bad guy loses, from a scientific standpoint, can you explain why cold would probably beat fire? Um, if it's real cold, then <laughs> um, let me think about this. There's a couple ways I could answer. Basically, could... to beat fire, you have to take away oxygen. And if you get something cold enough, you know, there's not going to be oxygen's not going to move around. Like all those atoms are just going to slow down and stay in one spot, and then you you can't burn because nothing. Like if it's burning, that means there's enough energy to make a chemical reaction happen. But if if it's too cold, there's not enough energy in the system. Nothing's going to happen. That's that's basically it. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move right on to a more exciting topic then. Mm-hmm. Plastic weaponry. Okay, because in the movie, of course, they had to combat Magneto by Mm -hmm. having nothing but plastic weapons. Can't have any metal. Um, And first of all, is it real? Yes or no? Yes. Uh, I knew this. I was asking rhetorically because what's real, and it's a little – it's awesome, but it's also a little scary. Yeah, and like borderline illegal. (laughs) It's an illegal gray area, so – um, there are um, companies and individuals who um, have like prototypes, basically, for 3D printed firearms. So, so they have so they have a 3D printer, and yep. they create designs. You know, for, the 3D printing modeling okay. software. They fire, and and you can shoot people with them. And uh, and not like just like BB guns and pistols and stuff, but there there are <laughs> You can find these 3D printed AK-47s, like assault rifles. Um, yeah, like there's a there's a really good Vice documentary about a guy whose you know quest is to make sure that everyone has a 3D printed gun in their house. Okay. What a wonderful world. Let's get past his personal uh, ideology. Yeah. And just and look at how fascinating it is that you can build a gun in your own home now. You can, um, yeah, you can go on the internet, download the plans, and then just turn on your 3D printer overnight and have an assault rifle. Now the problem with this is a lot of the designs are incomplete because the materials are plastic, right? With with, yeah. with metal, um, you get a lot less jamming materials because it moves less, right? It's yeah. more sturdy. So, so plastic is. I mean, the, the reason it's called plastic is because it has plasticity. It can bend. You know, it deforms pretty easily. That's what makes it so useful. Um, that's not what you want all the time when you're designing a gun, which has to be very precisely engineered so that it functions properly. Next up. Very still. Uh, besides yes, next awesome and all, but there's that scene where Arclight claps her hand together and uses her power of shockwaves to blast apart all of the plastic guns. Yeah. Real or not? Probably not. Really? <laughs> if, I mean, if, it, if, it, if it's big enough to shatter a plastic gun, it's going to throw the... Like, whoever's holding it, it's going to shatter them, too. Really? Okay, because, you know, that's how I, I, I... My thought was, you can shatter glass with a, with a high... Um, wave frequency. Yeah, and I'm assuming she's sort of doing the same thing by having the ability to match 
her her shockwaves that she manifests to the same frequency as other objects. The, the, so that they just disintegrate. Might have been my two cents. Uh, I think theoretically oh, possible, uh, based on different objects have different resonant frequencies. So theoretically, if you were to hit that resonant frequency, it would shatter the one without shattering something else, like you said, Michael, with glass versus other objects. Yeah, the the, the, the thing is that like with resonant frequencies, it has to resonate. It has to there, there's it takes some time to get it. To, to resonate. It doesn't I, happen I, I agree. Again, so, hypothetically, and it's a movie. <laughs> it's a movie. It's, it's exciting. It's an exciting action sequence. Um, so that's why. <laughs> but what we don't, what we might not, what we might need to inform is that Ryan is also a physics major. <laughs> oh, there we go. Um, just in case you didn't know, Ben. Nerd. <laughs> we have nothing but physics majors on <laughs> for the podcast. Or, or, well, no, I guess Grant's not a physics major. But anyway. And neither are you and Skylar. Uh, <laughs> I meant for guests, damn it. Okay. Oh, um, okay. Uh, let's move to the last final big topic of yeah. science. All right. The and one this I actually is the... wanted to talk about. <laughs> well, well, I mean, can't spend the whole time on one topic. I feel as if we get too bogged down that way. True. Um, uh, or we might, or we might not. We spent a lot of time on twins, and that was really exciting for Hellboy 2 uh, the whole way. But anyway, intangibility, all right? Intangibility. Mm-hmm. Shadowcat can go through walls, and this is the first time we see that power in full-fledged use. Uh, explain it to me scientifically in, in a real-world perspective. Can a person pass – well, I mean, can, can anything go through a, another object? Yes, is the short answer. What? Okay, so, quantum mechanics. Like, the the central uh, idea of quantum mechanics is that all matter has properties of both particles and waves. So, let's say you have, like, a pond, and you drop two rocks in it, and there's ripples, right? And they come across, and they, they meet each other, and those waves pass right through each other. Okay. So everyday matter has these wave-like properties. And in fact, you know, there are times when you can treat it entirely like a wave. You, like if you have an electron, sometimes you treat it like a particle, sometimes you treat it like a wave, depending on the type of problem you're solving. But really it has properties of both. So <laughs> on a small scale, um, if you shoot a electron into like a kind of electrical barrier, like a very strong electric field. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you do this, you know, using your your electrodynamic equations from um, like your freshman or sophomore year of physics classes, you'll say, okay, okay well, you know, it's gonna bounce right off that barrier. You know, it's it's like throwing a ball at the wall; it's gonna bounce right off. Um, and that's true most of the time, but since you have wave-like properties to both the barrier and the electron, it's going to be like a wave passing through another wave. So a certain percentage of the time, it's going to go straight through. And they've, they've seen this occur in the lab where they shoot electrons at the, like an electric potential barrier, and it, a certain percentage of the time, it just goes right through. I, I like, uh, generally, they call it uh, quantum tunneling. Yes, uh, yeah, that, so that, that phenomenon is called quantum tunneling. Yeah, quantum tunneling. So if you 
throw, like you said, a, a ball at the wall or something like that, we know it's going to bounce back. But technically, there is a non-zero probability that it will pass through said wall. Right. It, it's minuscule, but theoretically, there is a non-zero probability. Yeah, so there, there's nothing special about the electron except that the probability is fairly high that it'll pass right through because it's so small. Quantum effects are, uh, they happen more when you're dealing with something very, very small. I was going to say, we, well, let's, let's take a moment and just make the background information here that the smaller you get in science, the more chances that weird, crazy shit is going to happen. Yes. Or extraordinarily large. Black holes are weird. Center <laughs> galaxies are weird. Like everyday stuff, that's boring. Mm-hmm. The very small is, is, is fascinating. So essentially... I guess. Well, it may take like a billion forever years. If, if, if you, were, you and I start throwing tennis balls at the wall right now, we'll be throwing tennis balls until the universe is cold, dead, and empty before the first one passes through. Those wow. are the odds we're talking about. <laughs> and that's if like everyone in the world throws a tennis ball at the. It doesn't matter. Yeah, the, the odds are so low. It could be everyone in the world. It could be just me. It could be every. You know. Well, I can't. I can't Isn't say that. Isn't that so weird that it's never zero though? It's yeah. It's it 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 asymptotically approaches zero. Um, but it is not zero. That's amazing. Oh it's, man. Yeah phasing guys it's well, out there that's how i'm guessing it works with kitty price she's just extraordinarily lucky when yeah, it, walk it, walls. it phases her atoms through the atoms of a wall or whatever she's going through or whatever's going through her which is why it, when she drags the juggernaut into the floor he should be atoms below the waist <laughs> <laughs> like, like mixed a with them care about science so there you go that's what I've always been bugged about with phasing characters, basically. Do they always have to, like, concentrate on the soles of their feet to not sink into the crust of the earth, or what the hell is going on there? Yeah, that's actually been... I, th- I, th- I think phasing through objects is something you have to opt into. Yeah, that well, there was that was the plot of a Batman Beyond episode. It was! <laughs> and he died! It was terrible! <laughs> He kept phasing it through the ground until he died. In uh, in Kitty's case, it's uh, she has to concentrate to phase, so she can't lose concentration when she's going through a wall. Otherwise, she's dead. Uh, and an- another thing, while she's phased, she has to hold her breath, so she can't theoretically, because she can't breathe because she's not in the same kind of plane. Existence. Oh my gosh, you're right. There's no oxygen between walls. Mm-hmm. Unless wow. unless you know it's it's a. Like there's drywall. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's move to Ryan here. Um, <laughs> we are we are cruising on our time barrier. That's fine. It's a good episode. Let's keep going. Um, I'm not, I mean, I used to have this 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 setup where it was like it needed to be between forty and fifty minutes, but I've kind of extended that between like forty and seventy. So Ryan, it's hit me through with some of the fun facts you learned on X Men Three. Well, some of the fun facts. I'll go back to the. Uh, not involving the science, but when we were talking uh, Iceman versus Pyro, apparently in the UK, you can't show headbutts in movies. So when 
Iceman headbutts Pyro, they had to cut that little bit at the end of the fight out. <laughs> I don't know entirely how true that is, but that's what I heard. They had to replace it? Not repl- like cut away or something like that. Like that's right such a weird inconclusion to the scene. Because it's just like, okay, are they just doing this for yeah. the next 30 minutes? I, I don't know, man. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, uh, some other cool things is uh, one thing you know uh, – as you mentioned earlier, is that uh, uh, James Marsden had limited availability based on his uh, Superman Returns role, so he could not have. That's one reason they killed him off, is because they didn't have they didn't have him to do a full role. But one thing I found was that a production in general was rushed. The writers had less time, and I, I think part of it was Singer left. Uh, and then they went through a succession of directors they were trying to get before they landed on Ratner, specifically because he was able to do hit movies, i.e. Rush Hour, in a shorter, rushed schedule was one reason he was hired. Um, so the writers had less time, and not only did the actor for Cyclops have limited availability due to other roles, but the ac- actresses uh, for Mystique and Rogue, Anna Paquin and... Uh, Rebecca Romaine were also doing other movies at the time and had limited availability. What the hell was Rebecca Romaine doing in 2006? I don't know. Is that when Rollerball came out? I, the, I, the remake? I don't know. I, don't know. I, can't, has... even, I can't even remember what Anna Pack one was in at the time. Uh, oh, True Blood? She's probably just getting started on True Blood. Yeah, that was, that was back in... in Okay. Uh, no, it was. It, I know it was a movie. I know it was a movie. Um, <laughs> I just don't know what movie. Um, and then also, also, also on the subject of Anna Pack, one was uh, they did shoot a couple different scenes for the end of the movie. You know, in the movie, he ends up getting the cure, and she comes back and says, "You know, I, I had to. This is what I wanted to do." Um, but they also shot a version where she came back and. She's like, sorry, this is me. I couldn't do it. Uh, so they basically waited till editing to see what kind of version would work best, and they went with the one where she, the cure, because it's like, well, okay, she, we want to show kind of a different view from within the X Men camp, but also, you know, she went away for all this time, you know, just for her to come back and say, sorry, couldn't do it, was just kind of a letdown. Yeah, see, because that's the issue with the whole film, isn't it? The fact that they had to think about which one they were going to do for the ending. That that The Cure was such a big, essential plot point to the movie, but in the end, the X-Men were unsure about their feelings towards it. They they Um, left that, aside from the initial shock, they left it really ambiguous as to any of the X-Men's feelings about the subject. Because, I mean, we go on to the Wolverine movie where Wolverine wants to get his powers taken away from him. Um, and you have Beast, of course, who doesn't like the fact that he's blue and furry uh, and would like to look like a Kelsey Grammer again. Um, but but And then you have the, the, the mutants. Like There was no big essential conversation about what the cure means for the mutant community. And I think that's what was really missing from the film. They thought they could supplement it with how Rogue felt about it, but we all kind of knew that Rogue was the number one mutant who wanted to get rid of her powers. Um, and is 
and it's and it would have shown so much of a journey if she didn't get rid of them. If it was just like, yeah, I do accept who I am, and instead they didn't do that. Uh, in the X Men comic book where they explain the cure, there's a great story where Beast is about to take the cure because he doesn't want to be blue and free, but Wolverine stops him and he goes, "Hey, I want to do it as much as you do, but as soon as an X Man does it, it's all over." Basically, he's like, yeah, if some kid in the freshman dorm decides he wants a cure, what do I care? But an X-Man does, we're, we're done. Like, yeah. we're our not. credibility is gone. Our, we're, we are accepting that we are a disease. Not to mention it's worth reiterating that they're making story decisions based on scheduling, which is just hella disappointing. Well, it's, I mean, that's real world, man. <laughs> it's as it's much... Go, it goes back to the the knowledge, the other present idea that it's amazing that Hollywood movies get made. It's unreal just because of the amount of trepidations, the amount of roadblocks, and the amount of things that could go wrong that would cause a movie to not be made. And the fact that a movie ends up getting made, it's it's amazing. Okay, I got uh, I got one more fun fact, uh, and just a quick question for all of you guys. Did you ever see the after credit scene, or were you even aware that there was an after credit scene for X-Men 3? I was not aware. I was aware and did see. Michael? Oh, yeah. Duh. I mean, come on. Okay. <laughs> what, what happens in it? Just so, so for Ben and those others that are listening that hadn't uh, seen it, it was uh, it harkens back to the – right at the beginning of the movie, Xavier was – Asking the class, he showed on the monitor Moya McTaggart, another character that they just kind of threw in. Uh, a guy lying in a bed is like, okay, this guy's brain dead. You know, would it be moral for us to put the mind of somebody else who died with terminal illness into this guy's body uh, because technically he's a vegetable? Um, basically, what it does is it goes back to that lab and Moira comes in. It says, you know, how are you doing today? And the guy turns his head and says, you know, Moira, and she looks up and says, you know, Charles, because it's they don't explain it explicitly in the scene, but uh, what I got from the commentary was that Xavier was so powerful, he was born with an identical twin who was brain dead, and that was who this guy was. <laughs> and he was kept in this bed as a vegetable his entire life. Wow. <laughs> so when Xavier got killed by Phoenix before he died, he transferred his consciousness to his brain-dead twin brother. God. And that is why he is yeah. alive for Days of Future Past. <laughs> That's fucking terrible. That's so convenient. <laughs> oh, Deuce X mocking on my butt. <laughs> More like Deuce... X Mahina because poop. <laughs> poop, a poop joke. Of the machine. <laughs> oh wow! And that's well. At least we have an answer, right? Well, which which is kind of funny. I had to watch the commentary toward the end of the credits where they explain a scene that was completely. Well, everyone assumed he went into that guy's body, like the person he was talking about in the lecture. We all assumed he went because it didn't show the person. Um, it just showed Moira McTaggart. Mask and stuff, but it was actually Patrick Stewart laying in the bed. Oh, what? Okay. Yep. I don't remember that. Maybe, I guess. You I mean, don't well because it's on a monitor and he's got stuff attached to his face. But mm, Okay. 
Okay. But man, that's dumb. All right. <laughs> that's real silly. Yeah. Well, you, like, you didn't realize, well, why does he still look like Xavier when he shows up at the end of the Wolverine? Yeah, and why is he still paralyzed? Yeah. That, that, that part's just, still I, I just chalked it up to, like, there's so many continuity issues with these goddamn movies. Well, there, there's it's that, true. but I also kind of, they never actually explain in the movies how he got paralyzed. I mean... I, first class. Well, okay, yeah, now they have, but to that point, they had not. Oh, I see. So okay. they were just like, okay, well, maybe that was a trade-off. He couldn't. He could never use his leg. Well, no, no, never mind. Uh, that was wrong because he could walk. In the <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's not talk about continuity and uh, X Men. All right, <laughs> we're gonna dive down a deep dark hole here. Yeah, okay. we we'll just, we'll just not touch that. Speaking of diving down a deep dark hole, let's get to the final segment tonight of drinking game rules for X Men Three. Uh, they are bountiful and fun. Okay. I'm going to start with the very simple rule. Drink every time Logan heals from a near-fatal injury. Drink every time a character is needlessly killed off and or cured. <laughs> what? Just one drink for that? I, I mean, I suppose it happens a couple of times. And that ending scene is going to be a waterfall. Oof. Uh, take a shot of Fireball every time Pyro uses... A fireball. And a shot of Smirnoff Ice whenever Iceman uses ice. <laughs> you can have a lot of fun with the ice is up at the end. <laughs> uh, switch to a different kind of beer every time the movie switches to a different kind of plot point. It's a good time to try different craft beers, you know, get a, get a six-pack variety of Samuel Adams. You'll have them all open at once. <laughs> yep, that's how we roll. You have, <laughs> you have to assign a beer to a plot point. Our our rules get complex, okay? <laughs> speaking of speaking of um, drinking, finish your drink when you get to the greatest line of the entire movie, which is, of course, I'm the juggernaut, bitch. <laughs> you guys know where they got that? No, it was these these guys that did, was doing like a parody thing on the animated X Men TV series, and oh, yeah. that was a line that they had in there. And there's they showed it to Ratner's like you gotta have this in here, and he's like, oh that's perfect, <laughs> and he put it. <laughs> Back when you could when you could mash up oh oh man, this is when YouTube was taken off. This movie came out. YouTube yeah. came out in 2005. This is so I yeah. guess. This is when the internet was born. <laughs> this is when Web 2.0 was born. I was using the internet in 1998. Yeah, but like Play that's dial-up. Remember, oh, remember dial-up, man. Get off the computer! I need to use the phone. Oh, kids Take a today. drink if this movie revi- reminds you of dial-up in any way. <laughs> <laughs> For being kind of kind of quaint and entertaining to do once in a while, just because like, oh yeah, this is old. This is how things used to be done. And then I go, wait, <laughs> this is boring. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> take a drink. You know what? In your regular life, take a drink anytime anyone me- uh, mentions Netscape. Waterfall dr- during the uh, Stan Lee cameo. Uh, I had to drink <laughs> with Netscape. And uh, Chris Claremont cameo. Whoa, Chris Claremont was in this movie? Where? It, the, his cameo was immediately before, you know, Stanley was the water coming out of the hose. The guy mm-hmm. that was pushing the lawnmower that floated in the air, that was Claremont. 
Oh my gosh! You see, that's the wonderful beauty of being a comic book writer slash artist. Like <laughs> everybody knows Stanley. Um, I I'd say a, a fair amount of people know what like Frank Miller looks like, and Alan Moore you can spot a mile away, but um, or maybe not depending on where you are. Uh, <laughs> but you know, if you're a famous comic book writer or artist. You are like a god at a convention, but as soon as you walk out on the street, mm, nobody has a clue who you are. You could be in a movie and nobody has a clue. <laughs> Actually, it was the commentary. I didn't even catch it because it was so quick. Mm-hmm. All right. Any other drinking game rules tonight? Uh, take a shot for every gratuitous throwaway cameo of a character. Oh, no. You'll die. Take a no. drink, then. Take, just take a drink. <laughs> drink, for the, uh, drink for the Michael Jackson cameo in <laughs> Men in Black 2, which is a different movie. But it's what I watched when I was procrastinating watching this one because I heard it wasn't that good. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. We're gonna, a, I got one more. Take a drink at the shitty non-committal ending. <laughs> just to find out. Oh, you have to finish all of your beers at the end because all of the plot points wrap up. <laughs> or maybe they don't, so just leave your beers open. <laughs> or from them in the fridge. For eight years. <laughs> you, keep, you can't finish those beers until you've finished watching X-Men Days of Future Past. All right, so that's look like it's going to wrap it up today, super fans. Superhero Movie Club is recorded and produced by Triop Cop Productions. If you like what you hear, show us your support by rating us on iTunes. Doesn't cost you anything at all. All right. I mean, hell, you could you could probably copy paste an Amazon review of a completely different product. I don't care. I really don't. You know, just click the little five stars because it just increases it, it grows the community i mean it's it's the one thing we ask of you because we don't ask for money and we don't bog our content down with advertisements not that anyone wants to put their advertisements here but if they did we'd probably say no <laughs> this episode has been brought to you by michael's economic self-righteousness you. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> you can also continue the uh, conversation on our Twitter page at SuperheroMC. Uh, tell us where you think X-Men Last Stand ranks within uh, the X-Men universe. Are you excited for X-Men Apocalypse? Uh, let us know. And you can just, maybe hit, turn up on the show. <laughs> you can definitely turn up on the show. <laughs> let me tell you that. We're letting Ryan on. I mean, come on. I know I, know I get turned on the show. <laughs> <laughs> a, a Paulaner Hefeweizen, the greatest beer. Oh my god! I'm concerned. It looks like you're drinking out of a jar. There is that moonshine. It 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 is a mason jar that has been affixed to a like kind of goblet handle base thing. <laughs> you're so hipsterish. <laughs> mason jar wine glass. Rednecks have that too. My family's got. Well, I'll be right back. I have to show you guys something. Uh, well, uh, no, hold on. Stay, stay, stay. Fuck. Because I just want to end the broadcast so I can not have to edit all of this speaking out. Hmm. <sighs> Motherfucker. Fuck you, man. All right, if you want the world's greatest beer, 
Uh, this episode has been brought to you by Evil Twin Brewing uh, and Even More Jesus, <laughs> their Imperial Stout, uh, available for a limited time only. All right. The world's greatest. I'm saving it, it for the birth of my firstborn. <laughs> That'll do today. I'm your host, Michael Maurer. James Skyler Houtsma. Ben Anderson. And guest, Ryan Schnard. Thanks for having me, guys. Wonderful. Thank you for being here, Ryan. And thank you all of you across the land for listening to Superhero Movie Club. We hope you have a super week. Bye.